there, and welcome to the Zero Half Hour, brought to you by Zero Hour Health and Zetic, a podcast where we talk with leaders from across the food service industry and beyond about the pressing issues of the day in 30 minutes or less. Our goal is to share ideas from diverse perspectives on a range of topics that matter to every business in the current and post-COVID eras. I'm Rosalind Stone, CEO of Zero Hour Health, and thanks for joining us. Today's guest is Mara Aspinall. Mara is a faculty member at Arizona State University and an industry leader in health information technology, diagnostics, and testing. Leading large organizations in the private sector to serving on the Health and Human Services Secretary's Advisory Council on Genetics, Health, and Society in the Obama and Bush administrations. Mara has a truly unique perspective on the path forward in the ongoing pandemic and the crucial role that testing will play. This conversation was fascinating and will surely change how you think about how your org should be handling COVID. Enjoy. First, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do? Sure. And Rosalind, it is a pleasure to be here and to have the chance to talk to you about these critical issues. Um, what I, I've been called a diagnostic evangelist. And um, what, Love it. when I say that, it's because my chosen field has been diagnostics for the last 25 years. And it's often not fully appreciated that the only way to effectively and efficiently treat a patient is to have an accurate and timely diagnosis. Sadly, in many ways, it took a pandemic for people to fully appreciate the power of diagnostic testing. Um, So that's sort of my mantra. But what have I literally done? Um, Spent the last 25 years at large and small companies um, running diagnostics from everything from cancer diagnosis to pregnancy diagnosis and everything in between. And then um, six years ago, probably my proudest moment is I was co-founder of the School of Diagnostics at Arizona State University. Um, now called the Program of Biomedical Diagnostics, focused exclusively on diagnostics as an independent discipline. And in between, um, ran uh, Roche Tissue Diagnostics, a billion-dollar division of Roche, uh, Genzyme Genetics, circulating tumor cell companies, and have always been in the healthcare life sciences field. Fascinating. Because one of the things that I talk about a lot, and as you know, I do a fair amount of public speaking, um, Many, many of our clients are in the restaurant and food service industries. And the number of times that they get a call that this guest or this employee has E. coli or Salmonella and Shigella, and we find out that that is actually what a clinician told them, but there were no samples tested. Mm -hmm. It is truly unbelievable. Um, So if anything comes out of this good, and we'll talk a little bit later on as what we hope good to come out of this pandemic, it would be the power of testing, the accuracy of, of the availability for testing, the accuracy of testing, and doing the right testing in a timely fashion. It, it, um, because in the, in the foodborne illness arena, it has been literally, you know, killing us for years. Uh, you, you are so right. And I think that since the beginning of the pandemic, I've had the privilege of working with the Rockefeller Foundation and the underpinning of their COVID-19 work has been all about what you just said, the importance of testing, the ease of testing, and the critical nature of testing. And for me, for a big picture, why do we test? Well, we test um, certainly 
to understand the numbers of people infected by disease. But Rosalind, it's what you said. The real reason we test is to take action. And in right. this case, to reduce transmission. And Rockefeller right. has been a, a staunch supporter of that from the very beginning, literally in April and May 2020. So we're here on an interesting day. Um, today is the day that the FDA, you know, gave approval for for Pfizer. I think that's a a big deal, and and certainly our clients all know what a big deal it is because we've seen so much vaccine hesitation, and every little thing has moved the needle just a little bit to get the vaccine hesitant to to get vaccinated. Um, the mandates have the um, when people see outbreaks in their immediate circle, and we think this will sort of move the next the next needle. But I have a question for you: um, as Labor Day quickly approaches. Um, reopening offices is now top of mind for hundreds of businesses. Kids are going back to school last week, this week, next week. Interesting thing, a bunch of people coming back from vacations that have just traveled. What do you think are the most important for businesses, most important things for businesses to consider as they're weighing whether or not to reopen in the next few weeks? So I think um, there are a couple of initial pieces that they have to consider. One is, do they interact with the public? And for businesses that interact with the public, in my mind, um, the most responsible and appropriate way to go forward is a vaccine mandate and regular testing. The sad reality of this virus is that we know that 20, at least 20%, and probably more like 40 to 50% of people are completely asymptomatic. So right. the idea that I've, I've, I've been quoted on this, what are the three most dangerous words in the COVID era? I feel fine. Right. Because even though you feel fine, you could be giving it to, what is it with Delta, seven other people. So I think the first question they need to ask is, do they interact with the public? The second question is, are their employees for any reason, particularly high risk or average risk? And lastly, and I'm not going to say if, I'm going to say how, they want to implement a mitigation plan. I think it's irresponsible for companies to reopen without some sort of mitigation plan. Now, that may be required vaccination. It may be regular testing. It may be masking. Ideally, some combination of all of those. But I recognize that one size does not fit all. But you've got to pick, I'm going to say, at least two out of those three. I'm going to say three out of three, but let me tell you the most common, we're at a really interesting stage. Um, 18 months ago, 17 months ago, you know, you can imagine we were working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, and, and every day there were different questions and every day there was different sets of guidance and different regulations. And then we sort of settled down into a different pattern that was a little bit slower. I mean, constant, but, but the issues weren't changing every day. We're back in a pattern of the issues changing or the questions that we get changing every one to three days. And the single most common question I'm getting is what does a good employer testing program look like? Yeah. Tell me your thoughts. Well, I think that it starts um, with good communication. I know you're asking for different specifics, but which I'll get to. But I think the underlying piece of it is you don't want your employees going into it kicking and screaming. You want them to understand why you're doing it and do it well. So it starts with a, a, a foundation of communication. It then goes into, I think, ideally a vaccine mandate. But if you can't do that or won't do that for whatever the reason, it has to be a regular and predictable testing system. 
And what that is to me is if you're not interacting with the public once a week testing, if you're interacting with the public, I think that a company should consider twice a week testing. I think that the technology could be antigen, and I'm a fan, or PCR. Um, there are pros and cons to each, and we can get into detail if you want, but they both yes. work. Mm -hmm. The key mm -hmm. is the regular testing. Now, two months ago, I would have said, vaccinate everybody who can and will, and then test the unvaccinated. You know, I'm now saying you got to test everybody. At an absolute minimum, you have to do random testing for the vaccinated, because sadly, we now know for sure the vaccinated, you know, breakthrough cases are real. They're not just 0.01%, which they were for the first few months. Um, they're not high, but they're real. And that vaccinated people can spread it. It's still wonderful. The vaccinated people, 99.98% of them are not going to be hospitalized. They're not going to die. But they can spread it to somebody who might be unvaccinated. You know, we've talked a little bit about how we have a real-time window into what's happening out there because our employees, our clients' employees are, are taking either daily wellness checks or reporting their illnesses to us and begin chatting with our nurses. I'll tell you that our window into the present shows a higher breakthrough rate than, than yeah. has been published so far, much higher. They're, again, not being hospitalized, not needing respirators, not dying, but, but a significantly higher rate. Let's talk about, about testing, because we all agree that it's a key to reopening safely. Um, can you talk a little bit about the state of COVID testing tech? You know, how does it compare today? How easy is it to get? You mentioned, you know, you're, you're a fan of antigen testing now. I'm, I was a little surprised to hear that because I've heard such, such inaccuracies. Talk to me about all of that. And I realize that's a mouthful. <laughs> yeah. Well, first, um, we can't do video on this, but it's a pity because I have done a little history of COVID testing and how it started and where it is today. And I think okay. that the most common misperception is that it's the same as it was 15 months ago. So when you look at that, we have moved from symptomatic diagnosis and just symptomatic to mm -hmm. active disease to screening and soon, I hope, we'll move to surveillance. We've moved from only testing in a hospital to a central lab to a point of care, now at home. We've moved from highly invasive in the lungs to semi-invasive, you know, tickling the brain, to minimally invasive, just the front of the nose, to, I'm going to say, non-invasive saliva, or maybe even breath. And we moved from thousands of dollars to hundreds of dollars now to a few dollars. It's not cheap enough yet. And we moved from getting the test result, well, this has gone up and down, but getting the test result in days to getting the test result in minutes. So testing has fundamentally changed, much more, quite frankly, than any other part of the disease continuum. Clearly, vaccines didn't exist, and now they do. But testing has changed. And there's still a misperception that people think that testing now involves the back of the brain and it's gonna take a week to get the answer. And it's just not true. Right. Um, I, I mentioned this to you a little bit earlier, but um, Monday Night Football is coming back. Yes. You know, and, and certainly the NFL and, and all of pro sports have had challenges. And 
um, some of them, particularly related to football, are you know are facing their first just dramatic challenges. Interesting story, but impacted by staffing shortages. So instead of just having employees near the um, near the stadium or the arena, um, they're now having to transport employees because they can't get enough employees there, which provides testing challenges for before they get on a bus, being on a bus going to a stadium. Um, could be hours on a bus, then getting off a bus. You know, one of our clients is doing antigen testing before they get on the bus, and then PCR testing with one and a half hour turnaround time after they get off the bus, before they go into the stadium to work. Interesting how it, how that falls on the continuum that you're describing. Yeah. I mean, that's something that could never have been available maybe even three months ago. Exactly. And for what it's worth, I'd start with PCR and then end with antigen right before the event if I had to choose. Why is that? If well, you had to choose, interesting. Be, okay. Well, antigen testing is, this is going to be a strange analogy, but I'm going to try it. Um, if you, What's the difference between antigen and PCR? I can get through the science, but I'm going to give you a weird analogy. If you pour a glass of water... Um, cold water into a glass, summertime, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The water is inside the glass, and what happens 10 minutes later? There's condensation on the outside of the glass, right? Hot day. Mm -hmm. Um, PCR is testing the water in the glass. Antigen testing is testing the condensation on the outside of the glass. So, if you... Uh, it, you know, basically, uh, from a water point of view, it is um, conden- uh, creating condensation. I won't go through the physics here, but creating condensation. From a virus point of view, antigen testing is not testing the virus itself. It's testing what the virus is shedding, i.e. kind of sort of like the water on the front of the glass. So antigen testing is perfect for the infectiousness, the ability to spread the virus. So I shouldn't be too critical of your process. It's not a bad idea to do an infectiousness test before you get onto a bus because um, you can tell whether somebody's infectious. Um, But early on in a virus, the viral load increases very, very quickly. So the challenge with antigen tests is you might be negative in the morning and 14 hours later, um, you might be positive with PCR. And during that 14 hours, um, the antigen might be negative. Sorry, let me say that again. Um, The challenge with antigen tests is there's probably a 14 hour window, maybe a little bit longer, but um, some of the scientific data would say about, you know, most of a day where you might be negative and you might be positive to a PCR. And what that gives you is that potential of a false negative. However, if you use the antigen test the way they are prescribed and labeled today, you do two antigen tests within 24 hours and it is as good as a PCR test. Wow. And the reason I think that's so important, if we talk about schools or we talk about restaurants, you know, granted, you're talking about an instance where you could get PCR in an hour and a half, um, a point of care PCR. That's terrific. It's a lot more expensive and not available to everybody. If you go with a standard central lab PCR, 
You take the test on Monday and you get the answer on Tuesday, maybe Wednesday. Forget the seven days, okay? Best case, take it on Monday, you get an answer Tuesday or Wednesday. If you take an antigen test on Monday and you get a positive, you are positive. Unless you're taking it in the middle of a COVID ward um, where there are contaminants, you are positive. Mm-hmm. So you know right away and you don't go to that meeting on Monday. You don't get onto that bus. If you're negative, you take it again Tuesday. And if you get two negatives, you're negative. If you get one positive, the first or the second one, you're positive. And so you could wait for that PCR to come back. But if you do the two antigens, it's equivalent because of what I described as that 14-hour difference. There is so much misinformation about that out there. You know, we talk about misinformation about all of this. There is so much misinformation even in the clinical community about what you just described. Yeah. Um, I would tell you that the most common question that I personally get from CEOs and, and, and executive leadership of, of our clients, you know, are, um, I tested positive on a rapid test or I tested positive on an antigen. I'm going to go get, or my doctor told me to go get yeah. a PCR. Yeah. Or teledoc told me to go get a PCR, is scheduling a PCR for me. And I'm like, time out. A positive is a positive, and I'm not going to let you work for 10 days, regardless of what that PCR shows. Um, But I will tell you, we get that very question. I tested positive. I'm going for a PCR. You know, do you want me to send you the PCR? Probably 10 times a day. Yeah. And I, I will say the only, there is one reason why that might be good advice. But just to be clear, it's only one reason which is if you get sicker or God forbid somebody ends up with long COVID and they say, well, we're not 100% sure you had COVID. And you're like, no, 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 I had the Abbott Binax right here is a picture on my phone. There are some places, some payers who will say, prove to me with a PCR or in some way a third party tells me you had COVID. That's the only reason to do it in case there are long-term side effects and that you want to Right, and I will tell you there are are employers that aren't paying COVID pay without a PCR. And there are um, services out there that are doing your um, either Abbott, you know, your Binax or others via Zoom to document it. And that's a great way to document it for the individual. So if you need to document it, that's a reason to do a PCR. But you said it, if you get a positive on the first or that second antigen test, do not pass go, do not leave your house, do not interact with others. And then you can deal with the, um, the information and confirming it. I will say there's some little tiny positive to Delta is that um, and this has been a change, is that Delta seems to pass through people, if particularly vaccinated, faster. So yes. as soon as four, maybe six days, you're getting negative tests. Now, it is the other side of the PCR challenge. It's so positive, like a cousin of mine was positive on PCR for 44 days. He was not infectious for 44 days, right. but nobody wanted to be near him. Now we know a lot more than this when this happened nine months ago, but just because PCR is the gold standard doesn't mean perceived gold standard, doesn't mean it works in every instance and it is uh, the appropriate test for 
each of those times. If, you, if your employer asked to have a negative test to test out of quarantine, I would strongly recommend a serial antigen test to do it so you don't end up with false positives at that point. Right. A serial antigen, not, well, a negative PCR or? No, well, I'm saying, I mean, you could do a negative PCR, but because we know that in many people the virus persists and the PCR tests are so sensitive, which is nice Mm -hmm. on the way up, but if your tail is like my cousin, he tested positive for 44 days. He couldn't go to work for 44 days. Right. It was too sensitive. He was in no way contagious, and his wife kids never got it. Right. Uh, in our case, we are, we are never recommending to our clients a requirement for a return-to-work test. You know, we're, do, we're doing you know, t- 10 days where 14 days required 14 and, and allowing people to return to work. Some people are starting to do that, particularly with breakthrough Delta. So you're vaccinated. Mm-hmm. You've had no symptoms. If at six days, um, you know, some employers are saying, get me two negative, either Mm -hmm. PCR or two negative antigen tests and you can come back to work. That is not an official CDC um, recommendation now. So I want to be clear about that. But I know that some employers on the idea of getting people back to work are doing that. Sure. So a lot of people are talking about at-home tests. Um, a lot of people are talking about employees, people buying them and using them and keeping them at, you know, keeping them at home. And they're all different kinds. And some of them are $3 and some of them are $40 and some of them are much more. Talk to me about their reliability. And, and should families be testing regularly at home? Well, we just talked about the reliability. These home right. tests are the antigen tests for the okay. most part. And are, they all, are they all the same? Um, they're essentially all the same. And I don't know anybody at $3, but let me know which one it is. Um, <laughs> the cheapest one that I know of is the Abbott Binex. Two tests for $20 at Walmart. Two tests for $24 at Walgreens and CVS. Um, they are essentially all the same. Slight differences in what's called sensitivity and specificity. False negative, false positive. Um, but they're, they're all authorized by the FDA, and that's the key piece. Any test that is not authorized by the FDA should not be used. No offense if anyone's listening and they're a brilliant company, you've done lots of things. I would not use nor recommend any test that has not been authorized by the FDA. Um, so right now, there are in total... Um, at-home tests, there are 12, and nine of them are antigen tests, and three of them are PCR, but they're actually not PCR, they're molecular tests and a slightly different technology called LAMP, which we won't go into the science, but very similar to um, a PCR test. And of those tests, um, eight of them are over-the-counter and four of them require a prescription. Is the future of COVID testing going to continue to improve? I think so. Um, Well, a couple of answers there. I think we're going to be COVID testing for a long time. And I believe this pre-Delta, and it's only more and more true now as we're dealing with Delta. 
a lot of people have said that this is likely to become endemic, uh, meaning it's like the flu, we're gonna deal with it. It doesn't seem to have any seasonality, uh, although if there was any, in the cold weather places, it's higher when people are indoors. In hot weather places, it's um, better when people are uh, indoors. <laughs> I.e., I, let me say it this way. Let me let me say that again. The only seasonality seasonality is when people are indoors. So right. in the Northeast, there's likely to be more COVID in the winter. In the Southwest, there's likely to be more COVID in the summer when people are indoors in air conditioning. But I think we're gonna be testing at least part of routine screening going forward for a year, maybe two, maybe longer. But I think what will change uh, is twofold. One is the tests themselves will continue to get simpler and I really, really hope cheaper to be able to buy. I mean, for a family of four, even if $20 per person it becomes very expensive to add an $80 to your budget every week to test everybody every week. Agreed. Um, and that's just not acceptable. But it's still early days, so I hope that overall the testing um, price will go down. I'm on the board of one of the testing companies, but not one that has launched over-the-counter yet. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is I think we'll see new technology, uh, particularly in the lab, maybe in handheld tests, um, using CRISPR um, to shorten the process. And at scale, it can be single dollars, but we're not ready yet. So there's only one CRISPR test authorized in its only central lab today. But um, the, I think the other thing that will change is that we will see, we will go from diagnostic testing, do I have COVID, let me check it with this antigen test or PCR test, to what is the risk of everyone in this classroom testing, what's so-called surveillance tests. So we'll be seeing more pooled testing where everyone does a nasal swab or everyone spits and they test 20 people at once. And if it's negative, it's not good enough to take on a plane, but we know that everybody's negative. I think you'll see COVID sniffing dogs. You'll see um, breath tests. We'll see wastewater testing, which is already happening. And they won't be one by one by one. You'll test a group of people. And only when groups are positive, you will then test one by one. And I think that will be, I hope, soon, the next stage of COVID testing. And I, I am confident that will be with us in some form for years. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we see, you know, from where we sit is is sort of um, sort of um, an expansion of the haves and the have-nots. You know, those people that work for very large, very successful corporations have had regular COVID testing sent to them at home by their employers. Um, where, you know, the, you know, our, the, you know, the, the, the DoorDash driver or um, the, the dishwasher in a restaurant or, or, you know, or someone else still has to look for testing, concerned about paying for testing, you know, getting a, a bill for testing that they don't know they shouldn't necessarily have had to pay. So we're still seeing these really economic and, and racial disparities with testing access that um, is as magnified or more magnified today than it was a year ago. It is so frustrating. I completely agree. And there are, 
there are good testing labs who are doing bad things in terms of billing. So the test might be accurate, but they are billing when um, the vast, vast majority of testing is free and paid for by the federal government. Now, not uh, I'm going to Europe next week. I'm not going. If, if I were to be traveling and actually leave my house, um, then that testing, I could understand why that's not paid for by the federal government. But for work, for symptoms, it's paid for. But let me focus on one aspect of this because I think the Biden administration made a very, very good call just 10 days ago, which is there's about 11 billion in three different programs available for school testing. Most of it is in one program um, by the CDC and that's 10 billion of the $11 billion. That testing, um, that pays for not just the test, but the administration of the test, the gloves that people might have to wear, the extra um, Purell that you hand sanitizer that you need in the school. And just on August 10th, the administration nationally said um, they would allow testing to happen not just for the kids, but for their families and for the community. So what they're saying is, let's make sure our kids are tested and are back at school where they can learn and their families are tested. And this is a huge step forward. Now, this money is not administered anymore by the federal government. It's administered by individual states. But those individual states um, now have the federal backing to make the programs broader than they were before. And I just can't emphasize enough, you know, Abbott in the school setting is, you know, they've made this public $5 a test when bought in bulk and, you know, all those conditions. That's terrific. But it takes money for a school to organize this and teachers want to go back to teaching. This federal money, and hopefully each state will continue, each state will continue to use this same philosophy. This money can be used to hire an administrative person to coordinate testing. So teachers can go back to teaching and kids can learn in person. And I just can't emphasize that more. But the idea that schools have always been a community gathering place. And let's acknowledge them as that today and use them as a testing place too. And I think that I'm hoping that having parents and siblings and families tested might also get a higher opt-in rate as parents say, oh, that wasn't so bad. I don't mind my little kid, uh, my big kid, uh, getting tested every week. So I think it's a terrific decision and hopefully will expand testing. What we've seen from the employer side is um, we've, we've talked a little bit about how sort of every, every little thing is helping us move the needle for getting vaccinated just a little bit further. And we're finding that um, testing mandates you know, just the hassle of having to go get tested more frequently are getting some people to go get vaccinated. So if there are different testing rates for the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in schools, that may be, again, um, one of the things that helps us helps us get to the next next point with vaccination. We have time for one last one last question, and it's it's a it's a big one. What do you think we can do better next time for the next pandemic? Uh, First of all, acknowledge that there likely will be one. Um, that is a key piece. And in our large survey, we found virtually none, less than a third 
of companies had an emergency plan and very few of them talked about a pandemic, which you can understand, but now we've got to move forward. Secondly, um, educate on the need to be flexible. I think that um, both administrations have gotten a lot of criticism for change. You know, you said this and now you're changing it. I can understand how frustrating that is, but just like employers, we have to react to the information that we have. And we use the word unprecedented so many times at the beginning of the pandemic, it's still unprecedented. We have to recognize that the best way to respond is with the data we have in front of us. So I would have taken a different approach on education to say, we will keep you up to date. At the beginning, it might have been daily, then weekly, and then maybe, maybe we could get to bi-monthly and make decisions based on the best information we had in that time and create credibility by updating that, not the lack of credibility by people thinking it's one answer and then it's all done. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, and not just because I'm you know, a testing evangelist, we need to test. We need to use the power of information. When you have information, you have power. Employers, individuals, families, schools, government. Take advantage of the power that testing gives you. Use that information to take back control from COVID-19. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Mara. Enjoy talking with you today. Love to talk with you again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Stay well. Take care. That's our show for today. Thanks again for taking the time to join us. Stay tuned for our next episode in your inboxes and on your podcast app of choice soon. As always, if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover or if a guest we should chat with, don't hesitate to reach out to us at support at zerohourhealth.com. To learn more about us and subscribe to our twice-weekly executive summary, check out zerohourhealth.com. Thanks again.